Go to your quarters. He was going to hurt me. Go to your quarters or I'll pick you up and carry you there. Bridge to all decks. It is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I am really excited to visit what I've always found to be a very difficult episode, but I now have so much to say about it. So I'm really excited to be working on this one with you, Scott. This is a a really interesting episode to talk about. It's not an episode that I've gone back to revisit many times, but when I do go back to revisit it, as I did for our latest episode of Enterprise Incidents, (laughs) there's a plug for you. So the episode is Charlie X, which is a landmark episode for quite a few reasons. The biggest reason of all is that it's a damn good episode, still effective, one that still holds up after 55 years. It is an episode that I have always enjoyed, and it is an episode for many reasons that has freaked me out many times over. Steve, like when you go back to your early days as as a young Trekkie, how did you view Charlie X? Like what were your initial thoughts about Charlie X in the younger years of your life and how have those thoughts changed over these last decades? I think when I was a kid, this is one of the episodes I found genuinely upsetting. Another one we're going to be doing soon, which is Miri is another episode I found genuinely upsetting. These episodes where there are uncomfortable and difficult situations. And it's also an episode that It doesn't end in a nice way. It ends in a very unsettling way. But I'll tell you what's really weird is it's the difference between watching it as a kid and watching it now as a father. There is so much in this episode. And, you know, I'm going to talk about it as we go. But, like, I can see my son Jackson in Charlie X. Some of him, he's nine years old, and some of the trying to teach him how to behave, trying to teach him to deal with big emotions and all these things he's going through, particularly during the pandemic. And it's like, I just kept imagining as I'm watching this, what if I gave my son godlike powers? Like, what would he do? And it would Mm -hmm. be probably pretty scary, you know? So I had a very visceral reaction to watching it this time. Well, you know, this episode did resonate with me as, as, you know, an early Star Trek fan because when I was watching it, when I was watching Star Trek throughout the 70s, I wanted to be liked. I mean, who doesn't want to be liked? Yeah. A lot of people want to be liked. But when I was going to elementary school and middle school and high school, I wanted to be liked. And, well, of course, I still do. But as a science fiction fan, as a Star Trek fan, as a very vocal and overt Star Trek fan, being a fan of science fiction like that when you're young is not cool. And it was not something that you would instantly have people like you because you said, Hey, I'm a, I'm a big time Star Trek fan. I mean, now it's different. Now it's like you say, I'm a, I love the Marvel movies. I love Star Wars. I love Star Trek. Now everyone thinks you're cool, but this is an episode that has resonated with me for, for, for many reasons over these years. It is an episode that has always stayed very, very strong has really held up, and it really goes through so many different tones and emotions and covers so much ground. And you know what, Steve? It's kind of like the episode The Naked Time in the extent that 
when we see Charlie and he's starting to, we, we see that he's definitely unusual and he's different. He's displaying these powers. You know, first, we don't really think that much of it. But just like the naked time, it snowballs, it gets worse, and it gets to the point where the Enterprise becomes like a hell ship, where it's yeah. like, oh, my God, we got to get off the Enterprise. But before we get into our deep dive, there's a few things we have to mention about the stats of Charlie X. Okay, so first of all, this episode wasn't the first Star Trek episode to air. It was actually the second episode to air on September 15th, 1966. Now, originally NBC wanted this episode to air later in the season around November because of the mention in this episode of of Thanksgiving, the holiday Thanksgiving. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. But what happened was while they were shooting all these other episodes in production order, there were certain episodes that needed a lot of special effects. And those special effects took time. So when the first episode actually aired on September 8th, the only episode outside of Where No Man Has Gone Before that they already had ready to go was Charlie X. So that's why Charlie X was the second episode to air on September 15th. The writer of this episode... D.C. Fontana, real name, Dorothy Fontana. So it first started as an idea from Gene Roddenberry, and then Fontana did her first teleplay, and then Roddenberry did a polish. So Dorothy Fontana's impact on Star Trek, so huge. I mean, Steve, Dorothy Fontana is up there with Roddenberry, with Gene Kuhn, with Bob Justman, as probably one of the four most important people in Star Trek. No one had a bigger impact on Star Trek outside of those other three guys than Dorothy Fontana. So she was born on March 25th, 1939. She passed away a little less than a year and a half ago on December 2nd, 2019. She was Gene Roddenberry's secretary and she was 27 years old. And she used the name DC because Back in the mid to late 60s, it wasn't common for women to be staff writers. So she just wanted to hide the fact that she was a woman thinking that it might might be a problem for whatever reason. But Charlie X wound up being her first Star Trek screenplay. And over the next three years, Dorothy Fontana came to write some of the very best episodes of the series. Episodes like This Side of Paradise, Journey to Babel. The Enterprise Incident, also Tomorrow's Yesterday. And in the first season, after the departure of Stephen Karabatsis, she was promoted to story editor. And she was the youngest story editor in Hollywood at that time. And she was also one of the few female staff writers. And she stayed in this capacity until the end of the second season, even though you know, she wanted to be a freelance writer so she could do other screenplays for other shows, but she still did write some episodes for the third season. But it still didn't end. Her her involvement with Star Trek continued because she was an associate producer and a story editor on the animated series. She wrote the very best episode of the animated series, which was Yesteryear. That's the she, Spock one, right? That's the Spock where he goes right. back through the Guardian. I mean, that was a great episode. That would have been that, a great live action episode. Totally. And then she returned for Star Trek The Next Generation because she wrote the the two-part episode, the pilot uh, of uh, Next Gen, Encounter at Farpoint. She wrote 
Dax for Deep Space Nine. And she also wrote episodes for The Six Million Dollar Man, The Streets of San Francisco, Logan's Run, The Waltons, and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, which uh, I think is really cool. I love that show. What what is it you think she brought to the show? Like what what would you say her contribution is? Oh, one word, Spock. Her development into the background of Spock, starting with this side of paradise when he, you know, gets infected by the spores and he has all those emotions, but especially with the second season episode Journey to Babel. I mean, she wrote Spock's parents, Sarek and Amanda. I mean, that is a great episode for the development of Spock, for the development of, of his Vulcan heritage and his Vulcan background. And with this side of paradise, I mean, that's a, a very sensitive episode. And uh, she brought so much heart and soul, I think, to Star Trek. I mean, what do you think? No, I think that's I think that's the, the biggest thing. I, I, and I also think... I don't know that a guy could have written Charlie X Mm. because of how well Yeoman Rand is handled. And because it's a more, this is a more emotion oriented show. I mean, not, of course, not that guys can't write emotions. Of course they can, but it's not the adventurous, you know, where no man has gone before. It's not, you know, the, the big science fiction, it's a, it's a very personal story, which again, it's just one of the things that I know we talked about before. It shows the flexibility of Star Trek, of the ability to do the big and do the small, to do scary, to do uh, emotional, to do comedy, to do all these things. And Charlie X is certainly a departure. I also think about, so I just tuned into this new show. I watched this weird episode with this salt-sucking creature who can change shapes. And now I'm watching this weird episode with this super-powered kid. And I wonder what I'm thinking Star Trek is at that point. Because those are not – they're atypical shows yeah, in a I lot agree. of ways, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like I haven't had – Corbomite or No Man Has Gone Before or Naked Time, which, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, what is this show about? Yeah, yeah. This is the second episode to air, and it actually was filmed between July 11th and July 19th, 1966, over the course of, of six and a half shooting days. So in the first season, the per episode budget for Star Trek was $193,500. So the cost for Charlie X came in at $177,941, which makes it under budget by a whopping $15,559 because Charlie X is one of six episodes of the original series. And it was the first episode to be filmed entirely aboard the Enterprise. Because like Naked Time was on the Enterprise, but you had the teaser, right. which was which was uh, shot on side 2000. So the entire episode takes place just on the Enterprise. And some of the other episodes that also took place just on the Enterprise were The Changeling, Journey to Babel, A Land of Troyes, Is There in Truth No Beauty, and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Now, uh, Fred Steiner composed the score for Charlie X. So this was his third of 12 original scores that he composed for Trek episodes. And Charlie X was actually, he had said, his favorite of his 12 
recorded scores. This one recorded. Okay, so here's this is interesting. So the the score for Charlie X was recorded on August 29th, 1966. Think about that date, Steve. What does August 29th, 1966 mean to you? I, I, I'm guessing it's a Beatles thing and maybe there, is it the last performance? Oh my God. Oh my Did God. Did I get it? You got it. Steve, you absolutely got it. And that was a guess <laughs> based on, on your reaction there. But yes. So, oh my God, I'm very, very impressed with you, Steve. If we were well, doing I, this I, vir- virtually, I would give you a, such a freaking high five. Um, and that's, is it, is it candlestick? Yes, so August 29th, 1966 was the Beatles' last ever paid concert. You know, that doesn't include the rooftop uh, uh, for for Get Back and Let It Be. So the last ever paid concert, uh, Beatles concert, San Francisco, Candlestick Park, August 29th, 1966. The last song they played when they bowed was Long Tall Sally, and that was it for the touring years of the Beatles. And on that day... On that day, Fred Steiner composed the score for Charlie X. Wow. Pretty cool. <laughs> That's very cool. So, um, so, so the, you know, the, the interesting thing, too, uh, about Charlie X is I'm wondering. Now, did you ever see the Twilight Zone episode? No, I, I looked it up. It's the it's what's it? The it's the one with Bill, Billy Mummy. Billy Mummy. Right. It's called It's a Good Life. Right. And it's a it's a third season episode. So it, it, it aired in 1961. And Billy Mummy, who everyone knows, of course, uh, as Will Robinson from Lost in Space a few years later. So he plays this kid who has godlike powers. He can just wish anything to happen and he can wish people away that he does not like or or people that he thinks don't like him. And he does that. And everyone around him is scared to death of this little kid. And even though it's never been officially discussed, it must have been an inspiration for Charlie X, don't you think? That's what I think. That's what I think. It's funny, um, on the cinephiles, when when uh, we lose interesting actors or filmmakers, we do usually do a little tribute to them. And so uh, Cloris Leachman passed away mm. about a month ago. And I had totally forgotten that she's the mom in that episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so listen, I mean, Charlie X, it, it must have been inspired by It's a Good Life. And It's a Good Life was actually remade as one of the segments in the Twilight Zone movie, uh, which came out in 1983. And that segment was directed by Joe Dante. That's uh, one of the two best segments of that movie. uh, The other one being Nightmare at 20,000 Feet uh, or the remake of that episode. But I I think Charlie X is a fantastic episode, much, much better than the episode that preceded it, The Man Trap. Uh, an amazing guest performance from Robert Walker Jr. Amazing performances from uh, not only William Shatner, but also Grace Lee Whitney is terrific. And it's an episode that holds up, like you said, Steve, I mean, it's got tension and suspense. It's got humor, heart, heartbreak, tragedy, and it's pretty scary at times. And it also is the first episode to air that had a theme that would run common throughout Star Trek, not just the original series, but all of the shows. And that is that absolute power corrupts 
Absolutely. The other thing about Charlie X, Steve, is that when Gene Roddenberry wrote his his series proposal on Star Trek, the one pager that he wrote dated March 11, 1964, it had uh, descriptions of, of some of the episodes that he had planned. And there was one description, just one paragraph, one sentence actually, called The Day Charlie Became God. And his description of that is, and I quote, the accidental occurrence of infinite power to do all things in the hand of a very finite man. So Roddenberry's story outline was dated April 23rd, 1964, in which the title was changed to Charlie is God. His updated story outline, uh, which was dated April 14th, 1966, because now that he's got his cast in place, that's when he started calling it Charlie X. Fontana wrote her first outline on April 27th, her second draft teleplay on June 27th, and Gene Roddenberry's final polish, final draft teleplay dated July 5th, 1966. So let's get into it, my friend. It's so interesting that he had that idea so early, and now I'm even more excited to enter the world of Charlie X. You ready to go? Let's let's do it. So we start in the transporter room. We hear we're beaming over a passenger. We got two adults, one kid. As you mentioned, this is Robert Walker, who is the son of uh, Robert Walker, who played, who was in Strangers in a Train. It's probably his biggest, most famous appearance. And it's a very peculiar scene. Captain Raymar, I'm Captain Kirk. This is my navigator, Tom Nellis. And this is our young castaway, Charlie. Charlie Evans, his dossier. So the Antares is a uh, it's a smaller vessel, only has 20 people, 20 crewmen aboard. And there was supposed to be a scene at the very beginning during this teaser where we see the Enterprise pull up next to the Antares, kind of like the way we see it pull up next to the Botany Bay in uh, mm. Space Seed. But because they had to get this episode out early, they didn't have time to do special effects and build a model for the Antares, so that was dropped. So we never see the Antares. But when they beam aboard, you could just tell that these two guys, Captain Raymart and Tom Nellis, that they're they're really nervous. Like like they're they're scared. They are scared of Charlie. Charlie seems nervous and awkward and they're not talking all that much. And then there's this moment. We hear a music sting. Charlie's eyes roll up in the head. And, and suddenly, the guys are saying all sorts of great things about Charlie. Wonderful boy, Charlie. We felt it's quite honored being the one having him aboard with us. Why, it's, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Okay, this is, this is exactly the kind of scene that makes me think that this was very much inspired by that Twilight Zone episode. Because they are going out of their way to say nice things because they don't want to upset him. And because as we will see later in the in the show, we know what happens when you upset Charlie. Well, and I think he's actually forcing them to say nice things at a certain point when they're quiet for too long. I think he's using his powers to make them say nice things. The key observation about this scene, Steve, is that all this time, Kirk has his back to him. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't see what Raymar and Nellis see. And 
when there's a, there's a bit of a freeze on these two guys and they look very nervous and they're looking at Charlie like he's scared. And then we see, we see Charlie and he's, he's making this face where his, his eyes are kind of rolled back. And it's, I'll tell you, even by today's standards, it is a, it's scary. Like, yeah. Like what, why is he making that face? And like, is this the version of Charlie that has been commanding the Antares all this time, which is why those two guys do not want to stick around. They cannot wait to get back on that transporter platform, be back to the Antares and get the hell out of there. And one of the things that's, and, and, and this is, I think you mentioned in a previous episode, how good Star Trek is at teasers. And this is one we're like a minute in and already we're going, something's up with this kid. Something's dangerous about him. I don't quite understand it. Um, and the scene continues. And one of the things that keeps happening is Charlie keeps interrupting. He doesn't quite understand the social cues and norms of how you're supposed to behave. And you see Kirk noticing it. And it's something that I, I think I think I mentioned earlier is that one of the great skills of Captain Kirk is his observation. Is you can see him seeing that something is up. And there's this moment as Charlie continues to interrupt. You keep interrupting, Mr. Evans. That's considered wrong. You're right. Kirk calls Charlie out. And Charlie, I guess it's safe to say, he has he has no social skills, okay? Right. I mean, he he yeah, you know, you just sort of like chalk it up to it, the fact that he was left alone and he had to fend for himself and survive and he but then well, someone else walks into the transporter room. And I it, guess they don't have any women aboard the Antares now, do they? And that person is Yeoman Rand who comes in and Charlie, of course, 17 year old boy that he is, who's never seen a woman, has a serious reaction. Are you a girl? Is that a girl? That's a girl. I, and, and the way Shatner plays it, by the way, he, he's like really, you know, kind of charming. He's like, thinks it's kind of funny. You know, he's like, yep, that's a girl. <laughs> it's act one. He, Charlie's getting examined in sick bay. And this is where we hear that he's been alone on this planet since he's three years old. And somehow, how did he grow up to be a healthy adolescent? And McCoy comments on the fact that the ship's food supplies couldn't have lasted 15 years. After that, I, I found other things to eat. And you learn to talk by just listening to the ship's tapes? Which, again, these are things that we're going to find out are actually not true. And then Charlie asks about Captain Kirk. Well, he isn't like Captain Ramart. Oh, no. Captain Kirk is one of a kind, Charlie. He's just got on board the Enterprise, and he's already worried about people liking him. He says to Dr. McCoy, do you like me? And McCoy says, yeah, sure, why not? The other ship, they didn't like me. I tried. I'm trying to make people like me. I want them to like me. Most 17-year-olds do. It's a nice moment for Charlie to really be on a starship. Not a starship with 20 people, but a starship with 428 people, a lot of them women. <laughs> and, you know, the interesting thing is, is that when this episode was in development, there was concern that everything took place on the Enterprise. Now, the program manager at NBC who approved all of the scripts before they went into production, his name is Stan Robertson. So every time there was a new draft or a new version of a story or a new version of a screenplay, Stan Robertson would, would weigh in, he'd give his notes, 
And his concern was always that he wanted the action to take place not on the Enterprise. It became like a point of contention for him whenever he would read a screenplay and it would start off, oh, we're, we're on board the Enterprise. So he suggested that we move the action with Charlie off the Enterprise. Like, let's really get into the strange new worlds aspect of Star Trek. Now, it was Gene Roddenberry who insisted that the action stay on the Enterprise for one reason, to make Kirk more involved, and the other to really present a danger to the Enterprise and its crew, to really increase the stakes of Charlie's out-of-control powers. And that was a very, very good move on Roddenberry's part to insist that the action stay on the Enterprise because it's just like, again, just like the naked time, like the ship is losing uh, you know, sort of spiraling out of control in this case, because Charlie is in control, then that's going to put Kirk in much bigger dire straits because his ship is in danger. Such a great choice. I, 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 because it also, it creates this monster in the house feeling like our space, the enterprise is not safe because this kid is running around in it. That's part of what adds to the pressure of the scene. The moment that Charlie says, I wanted them, the other ship, they didn't like me. I wanted them to like me. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations like this with my son because there's an upset at school or somebody does a thing. And what's so interesting is like, there's all this stuff that we know as adults about human interaction that actually doesn't come easy. It takes some time. And and, and my son in particular, I think has struggled with, seeing all the little clues of behavior, all the ways that language works. And so he won't see it all. And he won't see maybe his action that made someone else angry, or he won't see the the clues that things are getting worse, or he'll be unintentionally rude because he doesn't know how to do it. And watching him there, it's been a process. It's not like he goes, oh, I get it. It's that, no, we slowly but surely trying to teach it. And I think about this kid who had no human interaction. It makes perfect sense that he doesn't know how to do any of this stuff. Um, one of the things I'll say just really briefly, when they first started to come up with AI, and they're like, and this is in the 60s. This is right around when this happened. Where we're going to make a computer that can talk is they suddenly realized it was about a million times harder than they thought it was. And they had to bring linguists in because language doesn't work like how we think all everything is about facial cues and situations and words it's not like a word means a thing it means a certain thing in this context and a different thing in that context and so the variables when they were trying to teach a computer is a million times bigger than we thought it is because Mm -hmm. we all do it all naturally we don't think about it charlie is like that computer with nothing in his memory banks like he he's having to figure it out step by step and it's way way beyond him also, you know, in addition to figuring everything out, you know, he's going to have to figure everything out most likely by experience and observation. And one of the first things that he observes on the Enterprise is an interaction between two male crew members where they're talking about hanging out when they're off duty. And one guy says, hey, you got a deal, friend. And he slaps the other guy in the butt as he's walking away. Ah, you know, no harm. No, no big deal. It's like pat someone on the back. No big deal. But Charlie remembers that for his encounter when he runs into his 
crush, which is now already very obvious that he is a major crush on Yeoman Rand. And, you know, who can blame him? Uh, I certainly had a crush on Grace Lee Whitney when I was growing up. And uh, sure. she was, uh, I just loved her as Yeoman Rand. And he, out of the blue, gives her this perfume. It's my favorite. Where did you get it? They don't have any in the ship stores. It's a present. So she's like, I got to go. I'm on duty. And she's walking, you know, walking away. And he slaps her in the butt, just like he saw these other crew members. Charlie. And he's mortified. He feels so bad. And he's speechless. He's at a loss for words. Like, really feel for this guy. He just didn't know. He didn't know. He, I mean, he didn't know. Look, why don't you tell Captain Kirk or Dr. McCoy what you did? And they'll explain it to you. Okay. Boy, this guy's, he's 17 years old, he's an adolescent, and his hormones are raging. <laughs> Two things about this scene. The first is one of the things that's clearer to me now than I think it was when I was a kid is one of the things we're dancing around with is adults' inability to talk about sex with kids. You know, there's so much that's like, well, you talk to him. Well, no, 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 you talk to him. And in this moment, Grace Lee Whitney is like, no, you have to go talk to a man to explain this stuff. The other thing, I said something I, when we did Enemy Within, where I said I thought that was Grace Lee Whitney's best performance. I was wrong. This is her best performance. I agree. She's fantastic in this episode because she's walking this line of not liking his this kid's behavior and not liking the situation, but also trying so hard not to hurt him. Mm. And you could see her balancing that out and see how it evolves over time until we get to the scene later in her quarters. Charlie's very existence proves, in fact, there must be some intelligent form of life on Thesis. He could not possibly have survived alone. The ship's food concentrates would have been exhausted in a year or so. By which time he would have been eating fruits, vegetables, Probes of Thesis indicate very little. And probes have been known to be wrong. Doctor, are you speaking scientifically or emotionally? It's a, it's a typical... Spock McCoy encounter where they're disagreeing, they're they're playfully arguing a little. And this is one of the great moments that people came to love about the series to see how Kirk and Spock, or rather how Spock and McCoy, they just they're always at odds, whether it's something serious or not so serious. But they are bringing different perspectives to the table, which is one of the things that makes the relationship so great. Gentlemen, the fact is, the boy is here, and he's alive, and he needs our help. And he needs a guide, and he needs a father image, Jim. I'll depend on your astute abilities to supply him with that. It's totally running away from the sex talk with the kid. You know what I right. mean? He's like, no, no, I don't want to. You do that, doctor. You can tell him all the medical stuff. And now we cut to the rec room. Mm. This scene was definitely cut down in the version I watched as a kid. Uh. Um Spock is playing on his Vulcan lute. Is it? Is this the first Hark. appearance? The first? Okay, yes. Uh, uh, this episode marks a, uh, another first in the sense that it's the first appearance of the Vulcan harp, and it is the first appearance of Uhura singing, because she did that uh, uh, in another episode a few down the line. And uh, I love seeing the interaction in the lower decks when they're off duty, when they got their guard down and Leonard Nimoy is is playing the harp and he's got a little bit of a smile and Uhura starts singing and she's uh, singing about Spock. Oh, I'm the 
Starship Enterprise. There's someone who's in Satan's guise. Whose devil ears and devil eyes could rip your heart from you. It's a real lighthearted moment. So I think this scene, I think the singing goes on too long in this scene. And I think it clearly seems to me an example of we have this singer, we should use her. I also think the first half of the song about Spock, where she's clearly improvising these lines, it is weird. It's a weird moment that's happening. And Spock is kind of smiling and enjoying it on some level and then maybe not. And there's a lot of kind of going on between them. And I wonder, there's that strange moment in Man Trap where Uhura is flirting with Spock and saying, you know, oh, are there moons on your planet? And don't you ever talk about wanting to talk to a pretty girl, blah, blah. And and it doesn't go anywhere. And now we have this other scene where she's kind of mocking his appearance and singing to him. And, and I go like, oh, was this a thing that they thought they were going to build? Like the Rand um, Kirk thing that ends up not happening. Were they thinking about building this with Ahura? And Charlie walks in the room. And he wants to play cards with Rand. And she's like, you know, being friendly to him, but just says, oh, pay attention. You know, you have someone singing right here. So he sits down a little annoyed that that she's given him the slight brush off for a moment. So she finishes the song and it's everyone's having a really, really nice moment. Rand says, hey, one more time. And the look that Uhura gives to Charlie Like, oh, I know what I'm going to sing about now. So now she says the sings the same tune, changes the words to playfully make fun of Charlie. Oh, Charlie's our new darling, our darling, our darling. Charlie's our new darling. We know not what you'll do. Problem is, is that Rand knows this is not a good idea, and she's kind of giving Uhura the look like, don't go there. And Charlie doesn't like it either. Of course, all Charlie wants to do is to talk to Yeoman Rand, as he wants to show her a magic trick. And the thing that's getting in the way is this person singing. And so eyes roll back up in his head, and suddenly Uhura can't sing anymore. The look that Charlie gives Uhura isn't the eyes rolling back in his head. Mm. He just gives her like a look and she loses her voice and she can't sing. So, okay, well, song's over. Now I have the attention of the woman who I want to have the attention of. So he starts showing her a card trick and he turns over the cards and they're, they're photographs of Rant. Well, how did you do that? I can do a lot of card tricks. Even if I was really super impressed with a magician, I'd be like, that's impossible. That should have been kind of a red flag, but she kind of went with that. And then he shows her another trick where he tosses a card away, and then it shows up in her uniform, right in her breast area. (laughs) Definitely a really, really good trick that could only be done by somebody with some kind of a power and we haven't even seen the full extent of it yet, but we know that it is, that the, it is a power 
that is formidable. Two things about this. The first is that what Charlie doesn't know, but I do know, is that showing that you somehow got pictures of the woman you have a crush on is actually not cool. <laughs> that is a, that is definitely a not cool thing to do. The second thing is that the three pictures are actually the publicity stills they took of Yeoman Rand for the show. That's what those three pictures are. On Earth Day, it's Thanksgiving. If the crew has to eat synthetic meatloaf, I wanted to look like turkey. Which I don't think I want my synthetic meatloaf to look like a turkey. I'd rather, I think that just sounds kind of gross. Um, and then Charlie comes up and because Janice said she should, he should talk to Captain Kirk. And he shows what he did to her by slapping Kirk in the butt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and Kirk struggling to explain why this is a problem. And he, the lines are terrible. I don't mean that they're bad writing. I mean that what his way of saying this is awful. There are things you can do with a lady, uh, Charlie, that do you, uh, well, there's no, no right way to hit a woman. I mean, man to man is, is one thing, but uh, man and woman, uh, it's, uh, well, it's uh, another thing. Do you understand? I mean, listen, Shatner's delivery in this scene is so pitch perfect because he he just doesn't know what to say to this kid. He just he he he's he left it to McCoy to be the one to to handle like the 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 fatherly uh, advice. But now Charlie keeps going to him. Charlie looks up to Captain Kirk. And then he is uh, saved by the bell when he is called uh, called to the bridge. Can I come with you? I don't think so, Charlie. I won't get in the way. So now this is interesting. So when Kirk gets into the turbo lift with Charlie, he's wearing the gold shirt. Mm-hmm. When he gets off onto the bridge, he's wearing the green shirt. Now, you could say, well, that's a big fat continuity problem. Or you could say, well, he went to his quarters to change first. So I always thought, well, yeah, he probably just went to his quarters first to freshen up and then change before he went to the bridge and he's put on a new shirt. But in actuality, it was a continuity problem. And by the time they realized that, they were already on to the next episode and it would have cost too much to call Robert Walker Jr. back to the set to reshoot that whole scene. So they just went with it, hoping nobody would notice, not realizing that people would be watching and dissecting these episodes hundreds and hundreds of times for 55 years. It is a mistake, but if you want to cover the mistake, you could just say, well, maybe Kirk just went to his quarters first to change, and that's why he has the green shirt. Problem solved. We are at full output enterprise. I must speak to Captain Kirk. Kirk here, Captain Robert. Captain, we're just barely in range. I've got to warn. They go silent. And Charlie makes a very unfortunate comment. He says, it wasn't really well constructed. And Kirk looks around at him and he says, like, what? How the hell would you know something like that? What kind of comment is that? And they're trying to do a, uh, a scan of the area. And what they are getting is debris that used to be the Antares. So clearly something happened. The Antares was destroyed. And Charlie knew that something was up before the members of the Enterprise did. One of the things that has come up many, many times on the cinephiles is there's an idea in filmmaking and screenwriting where you can either have the audience 
ahead of the characters in the movie with the characters in the movie or behind the characters in the movie. So if they're ahead, like let's say right now someone has planted a bomb in my office and it, and the clock is ticking down and you, you show the audience, the person planting the bomb, but I don't know anything about the bomb. There the audience is ahead. You could have it where I open up something and at the moment I see the bomb, the audience sees the bomb. So then we're with each other. Or you can be behind where I open something up. I see the bomb, but we haven't had my POV shot yet. So the audience doesn't know what I see. They only see my reaction to it. In this case, the audience is ahead from the beginning. Because right in the very in the teaser, we know Charlie has some powers. We with you know, with the perfume, with all these little things, we know that this guy is dangerous, but the crew of the Enterprise doesn't. And part of the dread of the show comes from the fact that we are ahead. And in fact, Hitchcock is the master of the audience being ahead. He he always and he always wants to show you everything so specifically and clearly so that you can see exactly what is going on. That's one of his geniuses. And then to cap off this scene, we get a call from the galley. Turkey. Sir, I put meatloaf in the ovens. There's turkeys in there now. Real turkeys. And you know whose voice that is, right? That is Gene Roddenberry's only, I think, voice appearance in all of Star Trek. That is correct. That is correct. And we have now seen a shift in tones. It's it's just like The Naked Time. And I know I keep going back to The Naked Time, which was uh, the episode that we did before this. It's just like you have to shift this tone in the first act where it's kind of playful that he's new, like he's a on his big starship, seeing all these people for the first time, seeing women for the first time, falling in love, trying to impress a girl, doing this trick. Everybody laughs. And we know that something serious is going to happen, but we don't know the extent of it yet, but we can feel it slowly building. We can feel the tone changing. We can feel it that even though we have not yet seen the full extent of his powers, even though this, this, other starship, the Antares, just disappeared. The anticipation, wanting to know what's next, is one of the key ingredients to the success of this episode. 100%. 100% agree. Uh, and that is the end of our act. In act two, we start off in the rec room with back to 3D chess. Uh-huh. And this time, again, we start off very much like where no man has gone before with Spock feeling pretty confident. The first thing he says... Your mind is not on the game, Captain. And he puts him in check. And we also were discussing about the Antares and why, how the ship blew up and why did Charlie seem to know about it in advance? And why does they're having this conversation? In comes Charlie and Spock puts checks Kirk again. And then Kirk makes a move. Checkmate. <laughs> so once again, I think Kirk has lured Spock into making a mistake. And I love, I love Spock's response. I love both of these lines. Your illogical approach to chess does have its advantages on occasion, Captain. I prefer to call it inspired. <laughs> so Charlie's standing at the door. He comes into the uh, into the rec room, and he's excited because he thinks he's going to play chess with Captain Kirk, the one person on the Enterprise that he really looks up to. He's really looking up to Captain Kirk as a father figure, father figure that he never had, not even on faces. I place you in the hands of our chess master. And... Charlie's disappointed that Kirk is walking out of the rec room and Spock is like, okay, you know, let's, uh, the key to three dimensional chess is this. And Charlie sits down and he's annoyed. 
I know how it is. Let's play. Like his demeanor has completely changed. He is annoyed that he has to play with Spock. And he makes his move. That was a mistake, Charlie. No, it wasn't. And Spock checkmates him in three moves. Man, that must have been a big mistake Charlie made. And there's a, a great look from Spock as Charlie is getting upset and has been rude. And Spock just gets up and leaves. He doesn't want to deal with this emotional thing at all. And I'll tell you the thought that occurred to me in this moment was I was like, man, how did Spock's dad raise him? And I think it was very much like this. If Spock started to have an emotional thing, dad was like, I'm out. And Sarek just left. Interesting. And, I never thought about that. But yeah, um, good point. Because he has no patience with this at all. And when Charlie is alone, man, those we get that music cue and the eyes roll back and he melts those chess pieces. Yeah, Charlie is pissed. And he did not hold back in those poor chess pieces. He's back in the corridors of the Enterprise and he runs into Rand, who was with another young woman. Her name is Tina Lawton. She's a yeoman third class. Hello, Charlie. I thought you might enjoy meeting someone your own age. And he wants to talk to Rand. Can I talk to you alone? Very rude. Again, no social skills on the part of Charlie because he never had the people to show or the situations to demonstrate social skills. And Rand is is mad and he starts talking about how much he's he's longing for her. He thinks about her and how much he wants her. And Rand is really getting and realizing just how much he is into her. And it is it is more than a crush. He is like head over heels in love or lust, whatever it is, she needs help. But his performance, Robert Walker, during this delivery is is fantastic. It is a great, great scene and a great delivery from him. I, I totally agree. And one of the interesting things uh, in terms of the screenwriting is in general, humans don't actually say exactly what we're feeling. We don't come right out and just say it. Like if you have a crush on a girl, you don't go up and say, hey, I got a crush on you. That's not how we normally behave. And so in screenwriting, we tend to write in indirect speech. And what Charlie is doing, he is saying what he's thinking. His emotions are just right out there. If I had the whole universe, I'd give it to you. I see you, I feel like I'm hungry over. Wow. Mm. And, and the thing too is that he doesn't understand that his treatment of Tina or the situation with Rand is wrong. And again, you know, I know I brought this up before, but I'm always interested in how the brain works. And one of the more recent, they used to believe that your brain was kind of fixed. It just, it, it was what it was. And, and what they have determined is there's this tremendous thing, it's called neuroplasticity, where over time with knowledge, your brain grows and changes. And one of the biggest things in recent research is the frontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that does impulse control and the logical part of your brain that can kind of step outside itself and observe the situation. In women, that only fully develops by at the age of 21. 
And on guys, it's not till you're 25. Mm. Oh, the part of your brain that does impulse control that can do risk assessment. And you think about what do young guys do? Well, they're doing all that stupid stuff because the part of their brain that would regulate them, it isn't fully developed until they're 25. And I think about you take Charlie, who, in addition to being a normal 17 year old kid, also hasn't had experience with people. Of course, he doesn't know how to do this stuff. And I love too, by the way, that I love, I love storytelling in the cut is that the camera pushes in on her and then we cut right to the bridge and Kirk saying, he did what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, he's amused. Gilman Charlie's a 17 year old boy. Exactly. This is where I go like, oh, it's, it is too bad that we didn't have more Yeoman Rand because her line. Captain, I've seen the look before and if something isn't done. Sooner or later, I'm going to have to hurt him. That's a very sophisticated human who's really thinking, understands this situation and thinking about what to do about it. Like, that's a smart character. Um, The other thing, by the way, uh, I know you've mentioned the cinematography many times. The lighting in this episode Mm -hmm. is, it is so interesting because the lighting is not realistic. It is like, it is like the way you normally do cinematography. The basic rule is you look for what would really be the light source. So I'm in my room and I have a window there and I have a window there. And so you place lights to match what the actual light source would be. And then you hold to that. That is not what's happening on the Enterprise at all. That is why, Steve, that Jerry Finnerman deserves so much credit, so many accolades and so much praise for the look, the unique, the distinct, the the beautiful artistic flair that he brought to Star Trek, especially in those first two seasons, and especially in the first half of the first season when they were still figuring everything out, trying different things. And there is a lot about this episode in particular where the lighting is so dramatic. And is it realistic? No, it's not realistic. No. But it's it's art. It is it is art. And this is a painting, the way that that Finnerman would use these gels, the, the color gels to to light the scenes and light the walls and light the bulkheads and 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 establish mood. He establishes mood with this lighting. And he really treats the scenes like art, like paintings. And I think that's why there is no other series that looks like Star Trek, neither before or after that series. Star Trek has a look unto itself. And, and that is because of Finnerman. Well, and if you think about, imagine scenes in Next Generation, that lighting, everything is even. It's all mm. general lighting. Yeah, and this is, no, yeah, there's shadows and highlights, uh, particularly how he's lighting Yeoman Rand's eyes, is that the there's like shadow on her forehead, there's shadow that's flagged off on her the bottom of her face, and a, just a wedge of light right at the eyes. It's really interesting. And Kirk has accepted the fact that he has to have a heart to heart with the guy. Yeah. And he has to do what McCoy asked him to do all along, which is be the father figure. I'm his first crush, his first love. And he's first. Uh, Yes, Yeoman, I'll talk to him. I'll look into it. So, okay. So now it's time for the heart to heart, the man to man (laughs) talk between Kirk and Charlie. As fate would have it, Kirk was not the one who was going to give this heart to heart to Charlie. In Fontana's earlier version, it was Dr. McCoy Mm. who has the heart-to-heart with Charlie. 
And that would actually fit quite nicely with the scene that they had in the beginning of the first act in the sickbay. But it was Roddenberry who said, no, let's make Kirk have the man to man talk. And should it, I mean, it should be the captain. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's captain enterprise. It's a show. Um, but the chemistry between William Shatner and Robert Walker in the scene is so great. The performances are great. There's so many great moments in the scene. And first of all, just Kirk's awkwardness and then warming up to the task. And Shatner, the way he tries to, you know, walk on eggshells a little bit with him and try to be nice with him. The moment where Charlie says, Everything I do or say is wrong. I'm in the way. I don't know the rules. And when I learn something and try to do it, suddenly I'm wrong. I don't know what I am or what I'm supposed to be or even who. I swear to God, my kid has said those exact words. Mm, It's mm. just like right out of things that are going on in in parenting. There's nothing wrong with you that hasn't gone wrong with every other human male since the model first came out. What if you care for someone? What do you do? You go slow. It's such a beautifully staged scene in that you just see how much Charlie is hurting, how lonely he is. He's lonely. Even though he's now on a starship with all these people, he doesn't have people skills. He doesn't have social skills. He doesn't know how to interact. He's in love for the first time. He's very, very confused with his feelings. And he has these powers that he cannot control. And he is he wants people to like him. He thinks that nobody likes him. He's alone. It is a different form of loneliness than we've we've seen so far in the series. Very different from the loneliness that Kirk experiences as the burden of command in the naked time. Very different from the loneliness that we see Professor Crater deal with in the man trap. It is a different form of loneliness because no one can relate to Charlie and we still don't even know why no one can relate to Charlie. Then there's this other moment that I never had this thought before until watching it this time. She could love me. She's not the girl, Charlie. The years are wrong. One thing. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And then he says, And there are other things. Oh. And I suddenly went, What are the other things? And I, for the first time ever, went, Kirk is talking about his feelings for Rand. Is that they have this unspoken or kind of spoken between Enemy Within and Naked Time that we know Kirk has feelings for Rand. And so that line suddenly jumped out of me and it never had before. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but I think you're right when he says, and there are other things like saying, hands off, buddy, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, she's, she's, she's not only my, it's cause she's my yeoman, but I have feelings for her. Like, and yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't elaborate. I never thought about that, but I want to, I want to ask you, you, you brought up now a couple of times, Steve, how watching this episode now is making you, Think about your own relationship with your son, the the experiences that he is having as he's growing up. So I want to ask you, has he ever seen this episode with you? No, I thought about showing it to him. Um, And I actually was, I talked to him about that episode today, literally an hour and a half ago, he and I were going out on a walk to get some exercise and I was telling it about him about it. And I said to him, can you imagine, you know, because he gets angry. He has he has some emotional 
is trouble maintaining his equilibrium sometimes. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. said, could you imagine if you had godlike powers and when you were really angry? And he said, and then this is what he, literally this is the conversation we just had. So I'm, I'm glad you asked me. He, he said, well, if I had those powers, I would make something so that I could turn my anger down and I would give it to you so that when I started to get really angry, you could just help me turn my anger down. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I strongly advise, especially after we, we were done with this episode, whether it's today or this week or some point because you just had the conversation with him, you should sit down and watch it with him and be like, have a discussion with him after the fact. Because you know what? I will bet you that you will, this episode will resonate even more after you've watched it with your son. I'm thinking about it. Here's he has he sometimes has nightmares, and I'm there's there's the image that we're going to get oh, to that uh -huh. freaked me out. Still, and it, st yeah, and so I worry like that that's going to freak him out. By the way, one one totally small thing, the line th that Shatner delivers beautifully. Charlie, there are a million things in this universe you can have, and there are a million things you can't have. That ratio is totally wrong. There's like a billion things you can't have, and maybe a few hundred things you can have. Most <laughs> of the universe is stuff you can't have. That's true. <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> but, but you know, listen, at this point, I mean, Kirk is really talking to Charlie for the first time. Yeah. Like, like this is, this is a, the ultimate heart-to-heart, man-to-man. And Kirk really empathizes with Charlie. So he has an idea. So let's let's blow off some steam. Let's head down to the Enterprise Gymnasium, and We're, this this is the <laughs> one and only time, the one and only time that we see the gymnasium of the Enterprise. And because anytime we have manly problems, we need to be manly men and go do some manly things. And Kirk demonstrates how to fall, which he does. Um, so I teach Aikido. So I've done uh, martial arts for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Aikido is a, a, a martial art where you fall a lot. So I've taught a lot of people how to fall. He shouldn't be falling straight back like that. That could hurt your coccyx. And then, I, you know, but he does slap the mat, which is correct, to absorb the energy. And then he says, tells Charlie to take a fall with giving him no instruction whatsoever. <laughs> like, like, just do it. Just do a shoulder roll. That's not actually that easy. <laughs> so it's just because I taught a lot of people how to fall. It's really hard for particularly for adults to learn. Well, um, listen, but, no, nobody falls and does a shoulder roll like like Shatner. And by the way, you know, so this scene of we see in the episode that that Shatner, that Kirk is not wearing wearing a top. He's 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 shirtless. So Shocking. When they but no no, hang on. Here's the interesting thing. When they were filming this scene, Shatner did not want to be shirtless. Mm. He wanted to wear uh, a red robe, like like one of the other crew members is wearing, you know, the one that he makes disappear. He's mm -hmm. wearing like this red robe. There's actually some publicity stills where Shatner is wearing that red robe over his red tights. And he did not want to be topless because so, you know, this is now the, the sixth episode that they are that they've aired or that they have shot in production order when Star Trek went to series, starting with the Corbomite maneuver. So at this point, because of the demands of filming a weekly TV series, especially the demands of a science fiction series that no one has ever done before with production values that no one has ever done before, and plus the demands of being a lead actor. 
So Shatner had put on a little bit of weight and he was really self-conscious about it. And he just wanted to wear a shirt. And so the director, Lawrence Dobkin said, okay, well, let's, let's shoot it both ways. They shot it both ways. They used the one without the right. shirt, but anyway. How many, I, he's, I'm trying to think is that this is at least the third time he's been shirtless since we began. Because he's shirtless in the Corbinite at the beginning of the doctor's exam. He's shirtless in Enemy Within. Uh, when they cut to him in the room, he's got when Spock comes in to talk to him. Right. I don't know if he's shirtless anywhere else. It's like, yeah, they've been asking to take that shirt off a lot. Well, um, well, in a, at the end of Where No Man Has Gone Before, his shirt was was ripped pretty good, but he was still yeah. wearing it. <laughs> All right, Charlie, lesson's over for today. You were going to teach me how to fight. You have to learn to protect yourself in the fall before I do that. Which is 100% correct in, in the martial arts that I've done. And he just goes, I don't want to do that. And Kirk calls his buddy Sam over to do a couple of throws. Sam throws Kirk. Kirk throws Sam. And then and then it's time to uh, do it with Charlie. And they have a little moment. And this is just completely unfair. Kirk's way bigger than Charlie. And he just takes him down. Oh. <laughs> and... This other guy, Sam, starts laughing. And if there's one thing that we know about Charlie is that he wants to be liked. And it's just, if there's something else that we are now going to learn about him, something that will stay with us for the end of this episode, is that you do not laugh at Charlie. Don't laugh at me! And Kirk, for the first time, sees just a taste of the extent of Charlie's powers with his own eyes. And he is shocked and horrified, cannot believe what he just saw. He made his crew member, Sam, just disappear. It's a truly scary moment. Shatner plays it great. It's not nice to laugh at people. What happened to him, Charlie? He's gone. That's no answer. He's gone. I didn't mean to do that. He made me do it. And that is just classic. I am not responsible for this actions that, that this is what kids do. Right. Um, and Kirk calmly calls the bridge calls for two guys from security. Charlie asks, what are you going to do to me? Again, the lighting is extreme similar to what we saw. Oh, in yeah. Ram. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Shatner moves into the scene and the lighting on his eyes and then the lighting on Robert Walker's eyes, it, it, like his eyes are shining. I won't let them hurt me. I'll make them go away too. They won't hurt you, Charlie. And the security comes in. He tells him to take him, take Charlie to his quarters. And they walk towards him and he knocks them both down. And a guy draw, draws a phaser and Charlie says no. And man, and the phaser disappears. Watch Bill Shatner in this sequence. He, the intensity of his look at Charlie, of the eye contact, he just knows that he has to psychologically dominate this person in this moment. Go to your quarters. He was going to hurt me. Go to your quarters or I'll pick you up and carry you there. He has to be the one to, to, to show that he is in control, that, that he has to present himself in a way that Charlie will listen to him, that he still has control over the situation. The look that Charlie gives back is like, almost like, I dare you. 
it's a great way to end the act. It's such a great moment. And the thing that I wrote, the note that I wrote down uh, here was I wrote, Kirk is best when he's outmatched. When you're facing the Viserys or when you're facing Gary Mitchell or when you're facing Charlie or in the naked time where he's, you know, basically his is drugged. Like that's where Kirk's at his best. That's, and it's also why Mud's Women is such a weak episode because he's not outmatched. Hardcore Fenton Mud is an interesting character, but he's not a match for James T. Kirk. Right, right. The other thing, and again, I'm just continuing to think about, because this episode may be thinking about childhood and development. And one of the keys to development is uh, we're trained with positive and negative consequences, just like an, an animal is, you know, there's the, the carrot and the stick. And that what I suddenly went is like, oh, Charlie has had no positive and negative consequences because he's gotten whatever he wanted because he has these powers and he's not being punished, but his life is really sad. And so he hasn't learned how to deal with negative things in his life because he's had no reason to. (laughs) How do you learn self-control when you can create anything you want? No reason to have self-control. Act three, we come back right to where we left off and, and Kirk just dominates them. And Charlie goes out with the two security guards. And I love Shatner's moment right after, because you can see once Charlie's gone, that was rough. You know, mm-hmm. it took, that took a lot out of it. Kirk here. Security reports that all phaser weapons have disappeared. And it is time for Kirk, Spock and McCoy to have a little powwow here because <laughs> They are in serious trouble. And now they now Kirk has seen with his own eyes what happened in the gymnasium. So they're in the briefing room and they're talking about the Thasians. Again, the race that it may or may not even exist. And Kirk still can't believe what he saw in the gymnasium, but he did see it and they have to deal with the situation. Short tempered because he doesn't understand. He needs, he wants, nothing happens fast enough. Probability is he's responsible for the destruction of the Antares, which would indicate a total disregard for human life. He doesn't understand what life is. He's a boy. And Charlie walks into the briefing room and Kirk asks him flat out. Are you responsible for what happened to the Antares, Charlie? Yes. There was a warped baffle plate on the shield of their energy pile. I, I made it go away. Well, they weren't nice to me. Like, that's all it takes. You're going to wipe out 20 20 human beings because they're not nice to you. And this is an out-of-control adolescent. uh, uh, These godlike powers in in the hands of an adolescent. That's really, really bad, which is something that Spock later points out. In the hands of an adolescent. What was interesting to me is this is one of the few scenes like this where Spock and McCoy are in total agreement. They are not arguing about this point. They are 100% on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Um, We go back to the bridge because one of the things that we've decided is we can't go towards Colony 5. That's where we're going to drop Charlie off, but we can't. We don't know what he would do. He would run rampant. And as they start to do this, Ohura is working at her board, and it's suddenly – shorts out in a big rain of sparks and she goes down and now the helm says it's not responding to course changes and we see charlie walk in in the background and kirk turns to ask spock a question and spock says yes sir there's a tiger tiger burning bright in the forest of the night he's uh quoting from the the tiger by william blake and 
it's disturbing to see Charlie torturing Spock. Yeah. Spock, who is always uh, talk about control. You're talking about a character that is in control, fighting to be in control every step of the way to keep his emotions in check and stay true to his Vulcan side. And now this out of control adolescent is using his powers to control Spock. And it's disturbing. And the uh, force in which Nimoy has to say the line is a powerful. It's a, uh, it's disturbing to see Spock tortured like this emotionally. Nimoy plays it great. And I totally agree. It's really upsetting. You're trying to change course, captain. You can't do that. I want to get to call any five as soon as we can. And he's having fun with it too. Like he makes a spot quote the Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary. Very nice, Mr. Ears. I mean, he's just having fun. It's the Charlie is now unleashed pretty much. Um, and Kirk says, leave my crew alone. And Charlie just walks out. Jim, he'll soon reach a point where he won't back down. I know. And then Charlie is in the hallway, sees Tina, turns her into an iguana. He doesn't even care about trying to control himself. The cat is out of the bag with his powers, you know, uh, all the way to the top. Because the captain has, and everyone under him at this point, has seen the extent to which uh, Charlie can wreak havoc on the Enterprise, which he is now doing. And this is where the tone of the of the episode shifts into something different, something much more drastic, much bigger stakes. And the Enterprise becomes like a, a hell ship to an extent, because who knows what this, what this kid's going to do. And we're trapped on the Enterprise with him. And then we end up in Rand's quarters, which, by the way, it seems like the Enterprise, none of these doors lock. Everyone can just walk in wherever they want to go. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Rand is in pink. She's in what looks like a nightgown. The thought that occurred to me watching it this time was just a few episodes ago, dark James T. Kirk attempted to rape her in this room. Mm-hmm. And Good now point. Charlie X is in this room and he is even more dangerous than Kirk. And he pulls out a pink rose to give to her, which, by the way, it looks like the exact same pink as her outfit that it, that they color matched it to, because Charlie knows that's her favorite color. And now we see a very different rant. She is really strong in this scene because mm-hmm. she's realized like that she was trying to be nice up to this point. And she said, there's going to come a time where I'm going to have to hurt him. And this that's where time, we are. Right. Yeah. The time is now because obviously whatever heart to heart she uh, Charlie had with Captain Kirk didn't work because he is coming on real strong now in her quarters. You don't walk into a room without knocking. Don't ever lock your door on me again, Janice. I love you. And she is at that point where she's going to put her foot down and say, I'll lock it when I please. What is it you want anyway? And he says, you. And he walks towards her and the music stings on the scene. And we come to the end of act three. It is genuinely a scary ending to the act. Yes. Uh, And we come right back into the room at the beginning of Act 4, just where we left off. And we see Janice talking to him. But while she's doing that, she has reached down and has pushed a button. And up on the bridge, we can now hear their voices coming through. And Kirk and Spock are listening. Get out, Charlie. Spock. I can't make it any plainer than that. 
and they run down to her quarters. And with just the shrug of his shoulder, Kirk and Spock go flying back towards the bulkhead. Rand is horrified, and she slaps Charlie. And he, without any thought at all, without giving it any thought, without any control, just reacts in a way that he uses his power to make Rand completely disappear. And when she does disappear, he realizes what he did, but it's too late. It's so interesting, the the connection between love and anger or desire and need and, and rage within Charlie. He needs, he doesn't know how to get what he needs. He doesn't understand. And when he doesn't get it, he gets angry. I loved her, but she wasn't nice at all. What you did wasn't nice either, but I still need you, Captain. Apparently the Enterprise is just a little too complicated for him to do all by himself, which by the way, is an important clue that I think Kirk picks up on for later on in the episode. You have to be nice. And then he basically tortures Kirk. (laughs) Then lifts it up, Kirk gets to his feet and gestures to Spock and he can't get up because his legs are broken. And I love this moment. Again, Kirk has to dominate. He has zero power. He has no way to affect Charlie at all. He's completely outmatched. And he says, Let him go too, Charlie. Why? Because I'm telling you to. Because you need me to run the ship and I need him. You know, at this point, everything up up to this point is Kirk is really, even after he, he demonstrated his power and he became more forceful with Charlie, he was still in control. He, she knew that Charlie was listening to him, but now he isn't. I mean, he like let Spock get up, but it is the breaking point now. And Kirk is just at the point where he realizes that he, he can't really treat Charlie with kid gloves anymore. Not that he is, uh, because he's definitely been more forceful, but he's a, I would say a wolf in sheep's clothing in the extent that that he looks like this harmless little kid, but he's just got these powers. And Kirk is slowly getting to the point throughout the episode where he just has to treat him with just so much force, even when it becomes physical. The the last moment is such an interesting line because Charlie starts to leave and then turns back and says, Growing up isn't so much. I'm not a man and I can do anything. You can't. That is a lot of a line. And of course, the reality is he can't do anything because he can't understand the society that he's in. He can't get Yeoman Rand to love him. He can't get Kirk to really like him or the rest of the crew to like him. If This is a, a movie about all the things Charlie can't have. And there's another moment in the scene, too, that I wanted to bring up, which is that Charlie says to Rand, I love you. And she says, you don't know what that word means. Mm, that's right. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, because again, I was thinking about this episode in a really different way and thinking about who Charlie is and what his past is. And I went, oh, that is literally true. When we hear what life was like with the Thasians, Charlie has never been given love. He's Mm -hmm. never seen love. He literally doesn't know what love is. And I suddenly went, oh, you could look at this story as Charlie is the victim of abuse, that he is a child who has been abused because he is, even though he's been given godlike powers, he's also been raised in a completely loveless atmosphere. And it made me think of this, uh, this very famous study 
um, where a guy named Harry Harlow took rhesus monkeys. And because there was, there's all this sort of nature versus nurture ideas within psychology and why do we, are we, and he said, no, this kind of nature has got to be, a, or nurture has got to be a part of this. And so he took these monkeys and took them away from their moms and raised them in total isolation to see what they did. And he did other things where he raised them with a, a wire shape of a mom that gave them milk or a soft shape of a mom, but didn't have the actual mom there. And these monkeys that were raised in isolation became violent. They they harmed themselves. When they were reintroduced into society, they didn't know how to behave. They often attacked the other animals. And sometimes they just would starve to death because they couldn't exist within the other rhesus monkeys because they had been raised in isolation and without love. And I just was thinking about that. And I went, that's Charlie X. That's who he is. And what was really interesting, so then I had to look up the study. Uh, the scientist's name is Harry Harlow. The study was published in 1965. Mm, the year before the episode was filmed. Yep. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. You know, I, I'm, I keep thinking now just how in the various episodes we've done so far, just in conversation that we have, that I, I think about things in a different way. For example, when when Kirk is is having the heart to heart with Charlie, and so there, you know, there's uh, her age is is one thing, and there are other things. I never occurred to me that it was because of the connection and the feelings, the unspoken feelings that Kirk and Rand have for each other. So that's is it, is it isn't it amazing, Scott, that you and I. I mean, you, I mean, you, obviously you are a well-known Star Trek expert and I have watched these things and read the books and like over and over and over again. And we're both having this experience of going, I'm seeing new things. I'm learning new things from you. I'm thinking about these shows that are 55 years old in a completely new way. And it's just, it's, it's a so much fun and B it's just blowing my mind about how Absolutely. much these shows have to say, you know, that, 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 and I'm blown, my mind is blown now because, because of uh, the, those sort of new ways that I thought about uh, the, this particular episode. And Charlie not only is getting to a point where Kirk cannot control him, but we see that Charlie is becoming more confident mm-hmm. and we are, we are, at another scene where Kirk and Spock try to lure him into the brig and Charlie walks in and says, aren't you guys coming in? And Kirk motions with his head. No, we're not. And Spock activates the brig and Charlie walks towards the force field. He is thrown back and he uses his power to make the entire brig, including the bulkheads, completely disappear so we're, we're seeing the uh, the wiring and the pipes and the, the inner workings of the enterprise and so he makes uh, Kirk and Spock freeze up and we are seeing that there is really no limit to Charlie's powers and also no ceiling on him controlling his powers. I absolutely love that he makes that whole bulkhead disappear. I think it is such a great choice. And it's so funny because we just had another superpowered godlike person to deactivate a force field with Gary Mitchell. And this one is so much more exciting with that wall going away. It's, it's amazing. And of course, the last thing Charlie says is, That wasn't nice. You'll be sorry. What scary words to hear from Charlie X. I'm glad you brought up Gary Mitchell. So here we are 
we're into basically, if you include the cage, we're into the eighth episode of Star Trek produced. And you know, in Where No Man's Gone Before, we see Gary Mitchell, he gets godlike powers and he, he lacks the wisdom to use his powers. And what does Charlie lack? He also lacks the wisdom to use his powers. And just like Kirk said in Where No Man Has Gone Before, he says to Daner, while he's being controlled by Mitchell, do you like what you see? Absolute power corrupting absolutely. And Kirk is seeing that absolute power being corrupted absolutely again, that these no mortal, no human should have these powers because they will never have the wisdom to control it and use it wisely. It's so crazy that that all, this connection between all these episodes that occurred to me when we were doing Man Trap, you know, we have the Talosians who had this credible illusion power, destroyed their civilization. They offer it to, to Captain Pike and he could have all the things he wants and he has to use his mind and reject it. We have Kirk's brain having to overcome his uh everything that happens to him in his na- in the naked time. We have Kirk splitting in two and needing his wisdom and knowledge to be what unifies him back in. And now we have an adolescent who hasn't developed the ability to deal with these powers. And man, we are going to see, because we've reached the sequence that freaked me out, is that Charlie, you know, rampages through the corridor. First, he tur- turns a young woman into an old woman. And then we see a shadows of someone laughing around the corner, a group people laughing we see the shadows on the bulkhead of the crew members we don't actually see anybody no laughing there's a huge music sting we see the shadows freeze but then we hear a muffled sound of a woman trying to speak but she can't open her mouth and we see a woman crew member a female crew member holding on to the bulkhead to feel her way around And the reason she can't speak is because she doesn't have a face. He made her face disappear. Talk about torture. And the way the director shot it, he shot just enough. You just barely get a glimpse of her face before it is cut to the next scene of the Enterprise in space. But I remember when I first got this on video back in the 80s, one of the first things that I did with Charlie X was when I got to that scene, I froze it because I'd never seen, you know, this is way before the internet. They, you know, they, they didn't have this image on any trading cards. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to see, and I just was like, I couldn't like, I was like, wow, that is just so amazing and so scary. You know, just what we think we've seen Charlie do it all. And, You know, he does something with his powers that is truly shocking. We've seen it all. He makes he makes a crew member's face completely disappear, but he doesn't kill the person. That was actually my next question, because in my mind, I always was like, oh, she can't speak because he wanted to stop her laughing. But then as I got older, I went, wait, can she breathe? Right, right. Right. So So, that's torture. So she doesn't have a face. She doesn't have a mouth or a nose to breathe. So she's going to suffocate painfully. Within minutes. With no remorse. He is, you know, Charlie just doesn't know what empathy feels like. He doesn't know what remorse feels like. And that's part of the problem. He's already a a 17-year-old young man. 
and he just lacks the wisdom to even empathize with the pain that he is inflicting on his fellow you know, humans, but also anyone who's on the Enterprise, the people that he's already killed on the Antares. I've waited long enough. I'm going to take him on. You don't have any special immunity? Not anymore. Push far enough, he'd send you off to oblivion too. Correct reasons that if he can take him on in such a way that there's so much going on on the Enterprise, Charlie can't control everything at once. He'll get overwhelmed. And when he lets down his guard, that's when I'll take control of the situation. And I'm paraphrasing. Charlie comes on the Enterprise bridge and he says, I can do anything, anything I want. And he sit, he sits in the captain's chair. <laughs> get out of my chair, Charlie, and get out of it now. I've got our ship, Captain. This is just the great delivery of Shatner as Kirk. Maybe, Charlie, but I don't think you can handle anymore. And he motions for Uhura and Spock and McCoy to turn on all the systems on the bridge. And Charlie is getting scared and overwhelmed. I could have sent you away before, but I didn't. You're going to have to take me out. Don't make me do it now. Kirk's ability to dominate, his ability to, with he's got nothing. I mean, it's like the Corbinite maneuver. He's literally completely outmatched. And yet the strength of will of Captain Kirk is just massive because this is the guy that was able to unify himself with the, with the enemy within. This is the guy that is the only person along with Spock, I guess, who could overcome whatever happened to him in the naked time. This is a guy who is not going to quit. And Kirk says, You've got my ship and I want it back. I want my crew back, whole. I have to break your neck to do it. And he throws Charlie out of the out of the captain's chair. You know, Charlie replies with this motion of inflicting pain on Kirk, and he's saying, "I'm sorry." He's saying, "I'm sorry," because he he likes Captain Kirk even yep. through all this. And, and I love too. After he pulls him out of the chair, they end up on the ground. We have a shot that I think is unlike any shot in Star Trek, which is the camera's down on the ground level with Kirk in the foreground and Charlie in the background. It's completely unique angle. Then we hear these weird sounds because before we heard that there might be a ship or something going on, and they said, "Well, are you creating that?" Or are you to Charlie, are you creating that? Or are you blocking us from hearing it? And now the signals are suddenly coming through because. Charlie was overwhelmed. As soon as we hear that these are the Thasians, his whole attitude changes. Everything about what's going on, he is genuinely terrified. And it is a blood-curling scream, no. No! The Thasian ship is on the view screen of the Enterprise. And then we see the Thasian leader, uh, played by Abraham Safar, we did not realize until too late that the boy had gone. And we are saddened that his escape cost the lives of the first ship. We could not help them. But we have returned your people and your ship to you. And tar- Charlie is terrified. Charlie, and this is where Robert Walker's performance again is just so right on, so perfect and so strong and powerful. Oh, I won't do it again. Please, I'll be good. I won't ever do it again. I'm sorry about the Antares. I'm sorry! I want to go with you. Help me. You can see the moment where things start to change. You can see 
looks from Uhura, from Rand, and of course from Kirk towards Charlie. And then suddenly, this is the monster. I mean, this is a scary, scary person. And yet you can see how compassionate they feel for this boy who is afraid and is going to go back to a loveless place. Again, now I, again, I see Charlie as the victim of child abuse, you know, who is now being sent back to his abusers. And the amazing thing is, is that you see that change happen on Kirk's face and you see him stand up into frame and says, the boy belongs with his own kind. That would be impossible. With training, we can teach him to live in our society. If he can be taught not to use his power. And to me, I go, this is Kirk from the Corbomite maneuver, who after the Fisarius is disabled, says, we have to go help them out. Even though they've been trying to destroy us this whole time, we need to go help them out. And that's what he's saying with Charlie X right in this moment. We gave him the power so he could live. He will use it always. And he would destroy you and your kind. Or you would be forced to destroy him yourselves. The score by Fred Steiner, this moody, ominous, dark score that we hear later in the third season on the Tholian web when they're on the Defiant. Oh, please. Don't let them take me. The moment where Charlie says, I can't even touch them. And you see Yeoman Rand actually starts to go to him like to embrace him because and that again that's an amazing thing of compassion i mean the guy literally just killed her on some level yeah it was really really scary and yet she still feels compassion for this young boy i mean his final lament i can't feel not like you they don't love and then this sound haunts me the please i want to stay in the echoes I want to stay, 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 stay. Yeah, yeah. And he freezes up and he turns the color of the Thasians and then he disappears. And that echo of the stay, what, what a great effect, what a great impact that, that it ends on such a tragic and chilling and haunting note that stay, stay, stay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so powerful and so it's so sad. And Rand starts to cry. And it's all right, human. It's all over now. What a sad episode. I'm racking my brain. Like, I, of course, I haven't watched every drama from the mid '60s, but this is such a complicated emotional experience, Charlie X. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And your feelings at the end of it are so complicated. And one other thing I just wanted to touch on is that this is now the second version of the uber powered person. So we had Gary Mitchell, Mm -hmm. we have uh, the Thasians and Charlie X, and we're going to get a whole bunch more. We're going to have the Metrons. We're going to have Trelane and the Squire of Gothos. We're going to have, errand of mercy and the organians we're going to have return to tomorrow and like and it's like there are all these characters in the star trek universe that have this massive massive amount of power and of course the one that i think it all leads to is q but hang on but there's a difference these other aliens that you just mentioned are just that aliens the metrons uh Trelane. Mm-hmm. we don't even know where Trelane's from but probably yeah. he's from the same area as q i mean i don't know there was a book about it 
But when you're putting that kind of power in a mortal human being, the power is too great for them. You know, in the kid, look look at what happened with with Gary Mitchell. Look what happened right. with Char- Charles Evans is his name, Charles Evans. Um, and look what look what's going to happen in Return to Tomorrow. That that there's there's problems being back in the human body. Right. You know? Well, absolutely. But but you know, in Return to Tomorrow, you know, uh, uh, Sargon and you know that like those they they were. Uh, a much more evolved, like they used to be human, but they were so far evolved that they, that they don't, didn't need bodies anymore, but they, they dare to think of themselves as gods. But in the terms of having that power in a present day human, it's too much. And we're, we've now seen that twice, that when you put that kind of power in a human, that power corrupts. It corrupted Gary Mitchell. It corrupted Charlie Evans. You know, the difference with Gary Mitchell was that up to a certain point, he lived a life. He did have social skills. He had experiences. He had an upbringing. Charlie needed this powers to take care of himself, but he was still a human being. And it was the adolescent side of him that kept him from having the wisdom to use his powers in the right way. And it cost him. Yeah. So do you have reactions to this show? Like what's the, what's sort of the word about it? Well, the word is that when it was over, I just shook my head and went, wow, that episode really holds up. It is, you know, just like every episode that we've talked about so far, watching it so in depth and, you know, with a different set of eyes, because knowing that we were going to just do such a deep dive into it, it's an episode that I definitely appreciate more now, but it is an episode that I've always really, really liked and I think the performances are fantastic. Uh, the, the, the message, obviously, that absolute power corrupts, but also the relatability of being an adolescent. And also, you know, this episode came out in 1966. And I think that it spoke to the youth of the late 60s the uh, counterculture, uh, the changing of the guard and, and, you know, belonging and all these people who were so different. I, I think it resonated on that level too with people in the 60s who were watching it when it aired for the first time. And it is a superb episode. And uh, Dorothy Fontana, who wrote it, uh, said, I always liked that show. It felt really good for my first Star Trek. Uh, Lawrence Dobkin who directed the episode said, probably my best memory of Star Trek is all those people. My God, what a talented bunch. William Shatner's ability to envision shots was evident, even though he hadn't started directing yet. And Grace Lee Whitney, who did great work with Robert Walker Jr. in that episode said, Robert Walker was a stroke of casting luck for Star Trek. He captured the perfect balance, projecting vulnerability, innocence, and horrifying menace all at the same time. And Grace Lee Whitney, we could not have said it better ourselves. I, I think Robert Walker is amazing in this. I, I think he creates something so totally unique. And here's the epiphany I just had is that I was trying to think like, it's such an odd experience to have this extremely sympathetic, but really scary villain who in the end is a tragic figure. And that's a very, very complicated kind of character to create. I was kind of go, where else else is there a character like this? And I went back to the very first science fiction story ever told, and that is Frankenstein. 
Mm. Frankenstein is a character that is once scary and sympathetic and tragic. Charlie X puts me on this emotional ride that is uh, unlike anything else, I think, in all of Star Trek. And that it's so funny because it's an episode that I don't seek out that much, not because I think it's bad, like, you know, the children shall lead or some of those other ones that are not good Star Trek. I think it's really, really good, but it's, it, it hurts me. It really does. His, his struggles, his anger, his pain, the, the, how lost he is, how damn scary the guy is. And then that tragic end, that scream, I want to stay, that is still echoing in my brain right now because what I picture is decades, maybe centuries, maybe millennia, where Charlie Evans is trapped in a world entirely without love. He has the powers of a god, but the experience of a prison. That is what upsets me so much. For the short time that he was with with his own people for the time that he was on the Antares, for the time that he was on the Enterprise and, and experiencing, I don't know if love is the word, I would call it lust. Sure. Uh, he, he was definitely, I think it was more of a lust factor in his uh, attraction to Rand than a loved one. Um, and now to, to just dip his toe in humanity and to experience it the way he did for such a short period of time, and to, to now know that he's never going to have it again, that he, he had his time and it was taken from him and he will spend the rest of his life, the rest of who knows how long the Thasians live, for his days that he will spend without love, without warmth, compassion, emotion, that is tragic. That's the tragedy of it all is that he will never be able to experience what he experienced and squandered. He squandered his opportunity. He squandered his life. And it is really sad. So that is what we think of Charlie X. Of course, we want to hear what you think. So you can follow the show by visiting us on Facebook, just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. You can follow us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, on Stitcher, Anchor, a whole bunch of other places. Please, please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. They are the most important thing for people to find out about the show. Scott and I are really proud of it, and we want to share it with as many people as possible. And of course, you can leave your comments on YouTube, which we love interacting with. Scott, how would people reach you? Okay, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and at MovieMance. Okay, so it's at MovieMance with a TZ. And I really would love to hear from you about Enterprise Incidents. And I would love to hear from you about this episode of Enterprise Incidents. Give us your take on Charlie X. What did you think of the episode? What did you think of our deep dive analysis of the episode? So make sure you hit me up on Twitter at Movie Manson. You hit Steve up at... SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're interested in movies, we'll check out the cinephiles where we've done deep dives into incredible filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick, where we've explored The Shining. We've explored Dr. Strangelove. And of course, one of my favorite episodes, 2001 with one of my favorite guests, Scott Mance. So do a search for the cinephiles podcast, but Scott, 
where are we going next on enterprise incidents? Oh boy. Oh boy. Steve, this is a doozy. This is a doozy. You know, we have gotten to talk about some pretty great episodes so far on enterprise incidents, such great conversations on where no man has gone before on the enemy within, which is an epic conversation, great conversations on just top-notch episodes like the Naked Time and even just this one with Charlie X. But the next one is a, in the analysis of Star Trek, I got to say this next episode isn't just one of the very best episodes of the original series. It's one of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever made. That episode is Balance of Terror. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about with Balance of Terror, an absolutely seminal episode, one of my top five favorite Star Trek episodes of them all, an absolute masterpiece, a brilliant episode, a classic, an epic, epic episode, and for sure, it is going to be an epic conversation about Balance of Terror. So join us for our deep dive into Balance of Terror on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.